AstraZeneca, Bayer Healthcare Pharmaceuticals, Inc., Exact Sciences Corporation, Merck, Pfizer, Inc., and Sanofi Genzyme. Hello, I'm Dr. Michael Cookson from the University of Oklahoma. I work at the Stevenson Cancer Center, and I currently am the professor and chairman of the department. Um, tonight, I'm joined by our guest, Dr. Stephen Borgian. He's the Carl Rosen Professor and Chair of the Department of Urology at the Mayo Clinic. Now, to set the stage, what I'd like to do is introduce our evolving landscape of advanced prostate cancer treatment, a guideline and case-based discussion. And what we're going to be discussing tonight will be the biochemical recurrent patient and novel PET imaging in a case study format. This is case study number one in our series. So with that, I'd like to introduce Dr. Borgian and and have him get started and, and on the case. Thank you, Steve. Sure. Thank you, Mike. And thanks to you and the AUA for the opportunity to, to be part of this podcast. So the case we'll discuss tonight is that of a 64-year-old man who underwent a robotic-assisted laparoscopic radical prostatectomy and extended bilateral pelvic lymph node dissection, the pathology of which demonstrated Gleason 8 4 plus 4 T3B seminal vesicle invasion R1 N0 adenocarcinoma. He was otherwise healthy. He was not treated following surgery with adjuvant therapy, but was followed with PSA surveillance and at 15 months was noted to have a PSA of 0.15. This was rechecked several weeks later and found to be 0.16. At that time, he was otherwise doing well without systemic or constitutional complaints and had regained urinary control. So Steve, this is a common scenario, unfortunately, in our practice as we take on these high-risk men and certainly with monotherapy, our chance of cure across the board is probably only around 30%. Um, not so long ago, we had just adjuvant clinical trials with radiation therapy, but we knew there was a trade-off and it wasn't clear who to treat and when, when to treat and that sort of thing. So could could you bring us up to speed on some of the more important uh, newer studies, and what would be the option, say, if his PSA was undetectable versus this early level of biochemical recurrence? Yeah, this is really timely because in the last 18 months, we've seen three uh, highly visible and well-done prospective randomized trials, as well as a meta-analysis that included the data from these three trials published. They were published in 2020 in Lancet and Lancet Oncology. Um, each of the trials essentially looked at the question of treating patients following radical prostatectomy when high-risk disease was determined with either adjuvant therapy, adjuvant radiation therapy, or managing them with surveillance and then what we would call early salvage radiotherapy at first biochemical uh, detection, I should say. Um, 
each of the three trials, as well as the combined meta-analysis, essentially told a similar story, which was that there was not demonstrated evidence of an improvement in outcomes, specifically event-free survival, when adjuvant therapy was used versus the management strategy of surveillance with delayed salvage radiotherapy in those men who experienced biochemical recurrence. So the advantage of the, of the surveillance with salvage radiotherapy approach would be, as you mentioned, that there's going to be a proportion of patients, perhaps 30 or more uh, percent or more that won't need any further therapy and will be spared the toxicities and cost of secondary radiation. Um, and then it allows treatment for those um, who do experience relapse and with these data are not having inferior outcomes. Um, interestingly, the trials have since been dissected as we see commonly with clinical trials um, and others have commented that perhaps the highest risk patients like the one we have here, glycinate with seminal vesicle invasion were not well represented in those trials. So there are some question and debate that stays in the literature about the generalizability of those findings, although they represent very high level uh, evidence and well done studies. Thank you for that update. Um, one of the things that we know is moving forward is the ability to try to predict, you know, who would be best to respond to therapy and whether or not you should add radiation and hormonal therapy in combination or radiation alone. I know there's been some genomic classifiers in this space. Could, could you speak a little bit about what's available and how that might guide decision making? Yeah, so so that's very again timely and, and important. I, I the the genomic classifier that I think has gotten the most study uh, to date at this time is in this disease space is the decipher genomic classifier, um, and studies have have looked at combining this genomic classifier uh, with clinical pathologic parameters essentially to create a risk score, and the idea of that risk score would be to help guide the decision for radiation therapy. For example, demonstrating that patients with a higher risk score would benefit from adjuvant radiation versus salvage. Um, importantly though, I think to, to understand and put in context, the 2019 AUA ASTRO guideline update acknowledged that the level of existing evidence with this type of genomic classifier risk score um, is not yet at the point where it can discern the efficacy of adjuvant versus salvage radiation therapy, as is the sort of common debate here. Um, so I, you know, I would say at this time we have three large, well-done prospective trials to inform us. The role of the genomic classifier is something that continues to evolve as prospective studies are done. And again, to the point that you raised, uh, perhaps it also can help inform us with the with the decision to use hormone therapy in those patients getting salvage radiation as well. Thank you. You know, um, when I was on one of the earlier guideline panels, we looked up the, the differences among so many definitions for biochemical recurrence. And I believe at that time there were more than 100. And it depended on number that you did, where you drew the line, ultra-sensitive PSA, you name it. So can you speak a little bit about what is kind of an accepted definition, how that might change in the future, and, and how that might impact on decision-making and treatment? Yeah. So, um, you know, I do think from a, for the audience, for trainees and things, understanding the sort of guideline letter of the law is important and then being able to put it in context and to your point to, to see how this is going to evolve going forward. So just to be clear, the AUA definition of biochemical recurrence following radical prostatectomy remains a PSA greater than or equal to 0 0.2 nanograms per ml with a second confirmatory 
PSA greater than or equal to 0.2 nanograms per ml. So that's AUA guidelines. Nevertheless, you know, as you mentioned, there are things like ultra-sensitive PSAs that can detect a PSA much lower than that. Um, and as we have, and we'll talk about in a bit, the evolution of next-generation imaging and novel modalities that are able to, do, to radiographically identify disease at lower and lower thresholds, um, how this number evolves over time is going to have to be something that's monitored and reevaluated um, in the context of new imaging studies, uh, ultra-sensitive PSAs, um, and demonstrated, importantly, efficacy of treatment in the salvage setting at lower and lower PSA thresholds. That's a great point. Um, so risk stratification is often discussed both at the time of diagnosis and then people try to compartmentalize these patients. And then I'd like for you to speak a little bit about that. I think, you know, the AUA and the Europeans have both kind of added some risk strata in here. How, how would this patient fit into that and how does that help in managing him? Yeah, so that's that that's really where it's understanding letter of law and then being able to put it in clinical practice. So I think it's it's important to know that not all patients with a detectable PSA following surgery are at the same risk to experience disease progression to clinical metastasis and 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 prostate cancer mortality. And that's really where efforts have been done um, to help further refine risk stratification of these patients. Um, and identify those patients who are at particular risk for disease progression and thereby institute treatment, even when the, the AUA definition may not yet have been met. Um, so, for example, I, I would say that the EAU has published very user-friendly and simple uh, risk groups for biochemical recurrence. They, divided it at, they, they classify patients with biochemical recurrence as high-risk and low-risk, um, and the patients with high-risk disease are those who either have a Gleason score eight to 10 at surgery. So our patient here would be high risk or a PSA doubling time less than a year. So again, it's two simple criteria that can stratify patients, high risk, low risk. They've actually validated this definition already in over a, a thousand patient cohort. So it's something that we can use in our, in our everyday clinical practice. So how do those risk strata implicate the treatment decisions? I mean, how, how is a, average urologist supposed to use that risk strata to, to guide decision-making? Yeah, so, so I would say that I, I think, you know, we have to consider multiple factors um, when, we're, when we're making treatment decisions. So one is risk of disease. So what is the risk of this patient experiencing disease progression to metastasis? Um, and then, you know, putting it in the context of the patient, age, medical comorbidity status, preferences, and risk tolerance themselves. So the concept there um, is that really one PSA threshold may not fit all as a trigger for treatment. Um, so to your point, you know, how do you use this in clinical practice? Well, um, you know, if you have a patient who is assessed by clinical criteria, for example, if you use the AU Gleason 8 to 10 or a, um, a PSA doubling time less than a year, then that might be a patient in whom you would treat with salvage therapy much earlier, perhaps even before they met that formal AUA definition like our patient here. On the other hand, you might have a patient who has lower risk disease um, in the setting of a detectable PSA following surgery. And that might be a patient that you don't use um, a, 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 even a PSA of 0.2 as the immediate reflexive threshold to trigger treatment. But you follow those patients because many of them have an indolent course of sort of a smoldering PSA and are not likely to experience disease progression to clinical metastatic disease. So it helps us put in context that patient's risk of experiencing disease progression 
and then guide secondary therapy accordingly. That's great. And, you know, so all of these pressurized discussions about what level to draw the line on for biochemical recurrence, the doubling time, putting in the clinical parameters, many of those um, types of, of risk strata and et cetera were developed at a time when we really had no way to image the disease. And then we've evolved some new ways to image the disease. So I think there's been probably three FDA approvals this year alone for new pet imaging. So let's talk a little bit about is further evaluation needed in this patient? And then if so, what is available? Yeah. So again, so again, very, very critical part of the evaluation of the, of the biochemical recurrent patient. So, um, you know, understanding guidelines, AUA guidelines indicate to us that for patients with a PSA recurrence who are at high risk for the development of metastatic disease, i.e. our patient here, periodic imaging should be performed. Um, and they acknowledge that um, novel PET CTs may be utilized. But I think a really important point in this process was brought forth by the ASCO imaging guidelines, um, which really put it to the clinicians to say that, that, that before a imaging study is obtained, a next generation imaging, a new PET scan is obtained, really the fundamental question has to be asked is this a patient who is a candidate for salvage local therapies? Um, because it, it gets at that issue of before you order the test, let's think about what we were what we are going to do with this data from the test and how this test may change management. Um, and so in patients who are being considered for salvage local therapies, um, next generation or novel PET CTs may be highly useful um, to help um, guide whether local therapy would be important, how to target local therapy, whether there's a need to target disease outside, for example, of the prostate fossa, if salvage radiotherapy is being considered. So, so I would say that, that yes, it, imaging has evolved significantly, very excitingly, but it still remains incumbent upon us to be thoughtful about, about what we're going to do with that information before we get the test. And then it can be quite powerful. So amongst the tests that are available, you know, I, I of course, know where you practiced originally was one of the few places where you could access a choline PET, and then things evolve with the Oxumin scan, and that became commercially available across the U.S. Um, now there are these PSMA scans available. Do you want to mention anything about that in terms of FDA approval lagging behind availability and what you would choose if you had the option of any of these tools available? Yeah, so, so just to your point, you know, we've had an extensive experience with PET choline, um, because we had early FDA approved access to it, um, then Oximin really widely available, and I, I and 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 for a while, and and I would put it forth even probably right now, still the most commonly used of these, just because of access. Um, you know, I I think that the data on PSMA is is particularly promising, and I think as widespread availability of this test um, increases, this is going to be the go-to one. Um, you know, we have some studies ongoing at Mayo on this now that 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 look favorable uh, from what we've at least just seen from from our own clinical outcomes with patients. Uh, you know, now a slew of data has come out about the sensitivity of PSA and the ability to detect at lower and lower PSA thresholds um, radiographic evidence of recurrent disease that can then guide management. And there's even a very nice study um, looking at, 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 at patient management changes and found that over 50% of patients had a change in management when a PSMA study was obtained. Um, so I, you know, my sort of 
window in, in, in October 2021 toward the future would be that PSMA is going to be, uh, um, you know, of what we have so far, going to be the most promising one going forward um, for, for, for imaging our patients. That's great. So we, we talked a little bit about the decision and the potential advantages of using an early salvage strategy as opposed to an adjuvant strategy. Um, let's talk a little bit about systemic options for patients with biochemical recurrence. Yeah, so so I think if we think about the 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 the, the broad ways that we can approach patients with with biochemical recurrence, we can approach them with continued PSA surveillance. We can can approach them with salvage radiation therapy, and then to your point, we can approach them with salvage systemic therapy, which in the hormone sensitive biochemical recurrence state would be salvage androgen deprivation therapy. Um, there are retrospective data that have looked at salvage androgen deprivation therapy with somewhat conflicting results, um, suggesting that perhaps the highest risk patients may have a delay in clinical metastatic disease with salvage ADT. Um, other studies showing really not a convincing benefit. There's one prospective trial that's been done in this, in this disease space called the TOAD trial out of Australia and New Zealand, um, which randomized patients, um, to earlier late ADT in the salvage setting. Now that was a heterogeneous cohort of both post-surgery and post-radiation patients with biochemical recurrence. So perhaps not the cleanest data set to be able to apply to our patients here, um, but showed improved overall survival with early ADT. Um, nevertheless, when we talk about current guidelines, and again, coming back to our AUA guidelines, which I do think it's important to know, our guidelines do not recommend routine salvage ADT alone for patients with biochemical recurrence. They don't. Um, they offer, they, they suggest surveillance or, or clinical trial enrollment. They go one step further to say that if ADT is going to be initiated in this setting, then, then a, a strategy of intermittent versus continuous ADT would be preferred. Yeah, I think that's an important point. You know, we do often have a quick trigger for treatment and we don't really have good data in this space for that initiation of ADT at a very, very low PSA. That's not to say someday we won't, but we don't have that yet. We do have some data for the rising PSA in the M0 CRPC state. So we'll have to stay tuned to that. But you brought up the, the intermittent androgen deprivation therapy. And um, let's talk a little bit about you know what we would expect to tell our patient in terms of if we do continuous versus intermittent, what would be the advantages of, of doing intermittent therapy for the patient? Yeah, I think the advantages of the intermittent therapy would be quality of life. Um, you know, um, in terms of side effect profile from, from the hormone therapy, giving them a break with testosterone recovery um, and, you know, the sequelae of, of chronic and sustained ADT in terms of bone loss um, as well. So, so I, you know, I think that the main advantage would be from, from those measures. And I think, you know, there are data that would suggest it, it's certainly not inferior from an oncologic standpoint. So, uh, you know, I don't believe we'd be doing them harm and we would be doing them a quality of life benefit. The other thing that I'll, I'll sort of mention um, that I think it's important um, to put in context, and, and one of the reasons I would say why um, ADT is not really endorsed in this setting is that we also have to think about the long-term natural history of biochemical recurrence. And, um, you know, there are some older studies and there's even just a new one in the Journal of Urology looking at the long-term natural history of patients who experience biochemical recurrence, which really can be quite prolonged. Um, and, 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 you know, this recent study showed that even men with a, a, 
a more rapid PSA doubling time had a prolonged natural history to their disease course. So we want to make sure that, that our treatments um, are put in the context of what the natural history of the disease is as well. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And it brings back, you know, the, the concept of that doubling time, confirmatory PSAs in that super low level range, looking at the complete picture, the grading of the tumor initially, the real risk that you mentioned about for progression or development of metastases, all that has to be weighed. And I think that's exactly why the AUA landed on don't treat all patients the same and don't treat too quickly, don't judge too quickly on that. Um, let's come back to the case here. You had this PSA rise that was low but real and confirmed. Let's talk about how this patient's evaluation and, and ultimate treatment went. Yeah, so this patient was evaluated um, with a, a, a imaging and was found to not have radiographic evidence of, of, of disease. Um, the patient was referred for salvage radiation therapy um, because just as we discussed, although they hadn't yet met strict threshold criteria of biochemical recurrence from the AUA guidelines, they were assessed as being high risk on the, on the nature of their, of their Gleason score, at least by the EAU, plus the, the seminal vesicle invasion, plus the presence of a positive surgical margin. So, so the collective sense was that this was a patient uh, who should be treated with salvage radiotherapy. Um, and, and, and we have had a, a series of studies that have nicely demonstrated that the efficacy of salvage radiation therapy is really um, greatest when given at a lower and lower level of PSA. Um, and we often use the term early salvage, and that's been essentially suggested to be less than 0.5, but, but accumulating evidence shows lower is even better. Um, and so the thought was that this patient would benefit from salvage radiation. Um, the, other, the other issue with salvage radiation is should it be given with concurrent ADT or not? We have several prospective trials that have shown um, a benefit to adding ADT to salvage radiotherapy. And that's actually now part of the AUA guidelines that it should be offered to patients. And so this patient was treated with six months of luprolide at the time of their salvage radiation therapy. Um, they fortunately did achieve an undetectable PSA um, following uh, treatment with both the salvage radiation and then completion of that six months of ADT. Well, I think that you have very saliently covered a lot of the really hot button issues regarding management of patients with biochemical recurrence. I think it's great that we've reviewed some of the most recent contemporary trials looking at the role of early salvage therapy, certainly the introduction of novel PET imaging, possible genomic classifiers, and where they fit within the context of the ma management of these patients. Do you, do you have any final words for the audience before we um, move on? I think, you know, the, 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 as with multiple areas in urologic oncology, uh, the key to, in my mind, managing these patients is, is appropriate risk stratification, risk stratification of the disease, risk stratification of PSA kinetics, risk stratification of patient parameters. So I think that that is what, what helps inform, you know, decisions, decisions the best as we have, to your point, the evolving field of, of, of imaging in this space. Well, I'd like to thank the audience for their attention. I'd like to thank Dr. Borgian for his expert review. And I'm Dr. Michael Cookson. We're going to sign off on this. But for more information, please visit the auanet.org slash university. And you can see this and other cases there. Thank you so much and have a good night. Thanks, Mike.
Good day. I'd like to welcome everybody to the changing landscape of advanced prostate cancer treatment, a guidelines and case-based discussion. This podcast is case study number two, and we'll be dealing with non-metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer. My name is Dr. David Gerard. I'm a professor in urology at the University of Wisconsin, uh, the vice chair of the department, and an associate director in the Carbone Cancer Center. It's a real pleasure to introduce you to Dr. Michael Cookson, uh, who's joining us today. He's the Donald D. Albers Professor and Chair at the University of Oklahoma, uh, is a current uh, reigning president of the Society of Urologic Oncology, and has served at, on the as Vice Chair of the AUA's Advanced Prostate Cancer Guideline. Welcome, Dr. Cookson. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, and it'll be nice to review this case of non-metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer. So I'll go ahead and get into it. Um, This is a 57-year-old gentleman who had localized high-risk prostate cancer and underwent a radical prostatectomy and bilateral pelvic lymph node dissection in June of 2015. At the time of his diagnosis, he had a Gleason 9, 4 plus 5, adenocarcinoma. His surgical pathology on final uh, pathology revealed seminal vesicle invasion, negative lymph nodes, and a focal apical margin. So his pathology was a PT3B, N0, M0, R1 tumor. Um, Of note, he did have a negative metastatic survey with bone scan and CT scan prior to his surgery. So following the surgical procedure, um, the patient at that time opted for adjuvant radiation therapy after regaining his urinary control. His PSA, because it was adjuvant, was on an undetectable range. And that occurred about six months after his original surgery in December of 2015. Then over the next two years, his PSA began to rise. So just for the um, data points there, he had a PSA of 0.2 in January of 2017, 0.6 in April of 2017, 1.3 in July of 2017, and then finally 2.9 in October of 2017. At that time, he underwent again a survey for metastatic disease and a CT scan of the chest, abdomen, and pelvis was negative. He also had a bone scan that was negative. So uh, what other aspects of this case were you discussing and considering uh, when you were managing the patient? Well, you know, this patient was extremely anxious. He knew he had high-risk disease. Um, He was watching his PSA rise and the doubling time was in accelerating. And, you know, he was just uncomfortable being on conservative management. So, you know, taking his rapid doubling time, the fact that he had been through, you know, both surgery and, and radiation therapy, uh, he really wanted to initiate treatment. So um, conventional ADT was initiated and, he responded to that with a PSA that went undetectable. Um, and in June of 2018, that's exactly what was happening. However, as is the case, um, 
and in some patients sooner than others, his PSA began to rise again. And so in December of 2018, his PSA was only 0.1, but then it started to incrementally increase. Um, it is 0.6 in 4 of 2019, 1.6 in 10 of 2019, and 3.9 in February of 2020. I will say that his testosterone remained castrate, um, so it was undetectable, and his um, PSA uh, increases were placed into a calculator for calculating his doubling time, and his doubling time was determined to be only about three months. He then underwent repeat conventional imaging with another bone scan and a CT scan, and those two were negative. So that's this, uh, when a patient has a rising PSA, a uh, question often arises, at what point do we begin thinking about imaging and uh, what, what kinds of imaging should we consider for this patient? Yeah, so, you know, historically, and almost every year we've ever done this course, the answer is no. You know, there, there's really nothing FDA approved in this particular moment. Um, historically and up until recently, Oxumin scan was a possible FDA option, but it was really only approved for patients who'd failed local therapy like radiation or surgery and had a rising PSA. Having said that, though, um, this year we saw, you know, the approval of two uh, PSMA PET scans. Some of those are becoming uh, more readily available, commercially available throughout the United States. And, and they're also, their approval is going to include staging for newly diagnosed high-risk men. And I don't think there's really a lot of parameters when it comes to advanced staging for advanced disease. So I think it, in the future, it may be that a man like this would undergo sort of a, a, a next-generation PET scan with a PSMA. Um, and that would introduce, you know, the possibility of, of several findings. Um, there has been some uh, studies that looked at men who had a non-metastatic um, conventional imaging, sort of similar to some of the trials we're going to discuss, and they have undergone PSMA um, testing, not a prospective study, but more retrospective. But they do, they have found, you know, early development of metastatic disease in this kind of patient population. And I reviewed some of that just to look and some of the triggers that would, you know, be more likely to find something on a PSMA included um, if their overall PSA was higher than, say, five. So that could be a trigger if they failed local therapy. So some of these patients um, get there without having had local therapy. Um, and then um, I think if they're if they were uh, node positive or had some evidence for regional nodes, they also might trip up on the PSMA PET. So it will um, probably in the future reduce the number of people that are in this disease state. And yet those patients were probably there in these original studies that we're going to talk about, and they had the responses they had. So, you, you know, it may be a, a semantic about whether we're treating the same disease because whether it's visible on a PSMA, it's circulating in their tumor cells in their blood, um, you know, conventional bone scans have levels of detection that are limited, and yet these patients 
may respond. So I think it wouldn't be unreasonable to get a PSMA scan. That was not done at the time that this patient was managed, however. So we're clearly going to be seeing a, a shrinking of this uh, M0 space uh, with the advent of this new next generation imaging. So uh, this patient, uh, just again, to think about it, as PSA doubling time is increasing every three months, uh, again, you got repeat conventional uh, imaging. He's been on ADT for several years now. So uh, should treatment be initiated at this point? And um, you know, who, who might be the people we'd want to consider observation for? Yeah, so those are you know, really good questions. And of course, um, we're going to discuss some of the results, but um, in patients that have this clinical scenario, non-metastatic um, CRPC or castration resistance, uh, we tend to err towards the doubling time as, a, as a, an indicator of who might be good for treatment. And that is based on the fact that the three trials that we'll talk about um, really uh, mandated that patients have doubling times of less than six months to be included in the trial. However, when we come to the actual therapeutics that are op op offered in this space and there are three agents, they don't really have that kind of guardrail on their FDA approval. It's really just indicated for men in this disease state. So there is some you know, nuance to who you might treat certainly the guidelines, and that's really what this course is about, um, advise uh, for treatment of men with those rapid doubling times. And in this case, this patient does have a rapid doubling time, of less than six months. But when you asked, you know, who might be appropriate to observe in this setting, that would be the patient who has a, a more um, slow rate of rise of his PSA, say a doubling time, certainly above 12 months. Those patients may be appropriate for observation. Um, and so because there are side effects and costs associated with these medications, um, I think that has to be in that shared decision-making conversation with the patient about, you know, do you have to start the treatment now and, and is it appropriate? And what are the, what are the risks and what are the benefits? So 12 months is sort of a, a threshold for thinking about initiating therapy versus, versus observation. Uh, so what agents uh, are available for this patient uh, in, the, in the modern era? Yeah, so um, in in the not-so-distant past, you know, we, we had the conversation when we would present patients in the M0 CRPC state, we would just simply say, you know, we, we don't really have anything here, so clinical trial would be indicated. And, and I think the response to that was three randomized clinical trials um, that looked at three similar agents in their epic, in their in their mechanisms of action, but um, you know three randomized trials that compared um, a placebo to uh, the medication. The three studies were Aramis, Prosper, and Spartan, and you know the three drugs are apalutamide for the Spartan trial, enzalutamide for the Prosper trial, and darolutamide for the Aramis trial, and and these three trials. Um, were designed to look at a very novel um, primary endpoint. So whenever um, oncologists and urologic oncologists think about like what would be something that might move the needle, traditionally we think about things like radiographic progression or overall survival benefit. But um, 
the the survival input the endpoint that was used in these studies was metastasis free survival so that could include death but really it was the development of radiographic appearance of of disease in patients on conventional imaging who didn't have it and the fda um, agreed that that was meaningful for these patients who wanted to um, you know kind of if they could reduce that that bad outcome to development of a bone metastasis for example and so there were there were three studies that were performed in these patients looking at these agents with that intent. So just to remind our listeners, uh, we're talking about apalutamide, enzalutamide, and darolutamide, and that these are all androgen receptor signaling inhibitors. Uh, they're often termed second-generation non-steroidal antiandrogens just because of the fact that they're much more potent uh, than the first generation, such as bicalutamide. And really these function uh, very similarly. Uh, they, they not only inhibit binding of androgens to the androgen receptor, but they inhibit the nuclear translocation of the androgen receptor, as well as inhibiting uh, the association of the androgen receptor with DNA. So really working at multiple levels uh, as far as blocking the action of this. Enzalutamide was the first drug that was found uh, and it was a rationally de or designed drug. Uh, apalutamide uh, shortly followed, and, and darolutamide is, has been the most recent drug in this class. Uh, they're very, uh, again, similar mechanisms of action. Um, side effect wise, uh, there are a number of side effects that uh, one needs to think about with these drugs, and fatigue is, is uh, one that can often be uh, significant in older individuals. Um, one also has to be concerned about uh, seizures, and there is some blood-brain barrier absorption of enzalutamide, uh, potentially less so with some of the uh, other uh, drugs such as uh, darolutamide. So one needs to be careful with the use of these drugs in elderly patients uh, with history of seizures uh, or fatigue as well. So uh, this patient, um, uh, so we have these three trials now. Uh, we talked a little bit about metastasis-free survival as being an endpoint uh, and now overall survival. Um, where do we, uh, as far as a next step uh, with regard to this case, uh, what, what else should, uh, should be considered for this patient? Yeah, well, I, I probably need to back up for a minute because I, you mentioned it and I, I alluded to it, but I wanna make sure it's clear. These um, three studies all had that singular primary endpoint of metastasis-free survival. And, you know, of course, the studies were started at slightly different times and some were completed sooner than others. But um, in the end, they all met their primary endpoint of metastasis-free survival and that led to their FDA approval. So we were off and running giving these, but the studies all did their due diligence and did, you know, longer follow-up on these patients. Um, I remember when we were originally talking about it, that we would say, like, what would it take to, you know, make this meaningful? And would it be, you know, several months or, you know, metastasis-free survival? What would it look like? And most people thought three to six months. And 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 certainly the, the trials exceeded that in terms of their benefit. But when the studies were followed out for longer, they then developed an overall survival benefit in all three studies. And so I think that surprised a lot of people because I think a lot of people thought, you know, we would um, perhaps just defer or delay the inevitable, but we weren't really going to change 
how long they lived. And so it was really exciting to learn that simply by adding, you know, this um, novel second generation antiandrogen to the mix, we were able to not only delay the development of metastases, but extend the length of their lives. And so I think a lot of people were surprised by that. And that gives us hope that perhaps combination therapies and additional layering could, could do even more. Um, you know, if you think about this, this is in the M0 castration resistant state where we have this kind of artificially created state of a rising PSA despite hormonal therapy. And you, we don't have these kind of data for patients with just a rising PSA after failed local therapy. So, you know, it, it, it brings the question into mind because we really don't have high level evidence that there's any um, survival benefit really to men who have just a rising PSA after failed local therapy and when to initiate therapy in that setting is still very much in debate. But in the M0 space for those patients who had that rapid doubling time, um, who that's the criteria to get into those studies, well, there was benefit and the benefit was both metastasis-free and overall survival. So I, I just wanted to make sure that that was clear because I think I might have um, not mention the overall survival component, which was the longer follow-up. And it, certainly the um, curves are quite delayed with regard to uh, metastasis-free survival. So uh, starting it in this, in this uh, space appears to be very effective. So when we think about uh, additional management of this patient, uh, what are some other things that you want to think about as far as um, continuing uh, on, uh, where will he fit in the con con uh, continuum as far as uh, once he begins to fail this drug? Yeah. So when we add this to their medication, you know, of course, we continue their conventional um, androgen deprivation therapy. So for example, if they were on Luprolide, they would continue on Luprolide. And then this oral agent is added. That was done in this case. Um, this patient did get a response. So his PSA um, was about 3.9 when he started the treatment and it fell to 0 0.02 and it remained there. Um, he did have some additional fatigue based on the AR oral agent that was added, but he tolerated it well. Um, another thing that we, we didn't do in this patient due to the timing, but then subsequently um, have offered him is germline testing. Uh, so, you know, we we've become aware of the importance of germline testing, both in newly diagnosed high-risk patients who have family histories of prostate cancer, breast cancer, ovarian cancer, lung cancer, colon cancer. So that's an opportunity. Newly diagnosed metastatic patients, um, certainly now we know that up to maybe 10% of them may have um, a germline mutation in their DNA repair genes. And then in, if they haven't been offered it, but we meet them more later in their disease course in the castration resistance space, they're certainly offered germline testing there. And he was, and this gentleman was found to have a BRCA2 mutation. Hmm. Great. Well, uh, so let's think about uh, uh, as far as take-home messages, what, uh, what do you want our listeners to follow up with uh, regarding uh, this M0 castration-resistant prostate cancer space? Yeah, so what I would say is that it's not going to go away completely. You know, it's going to still be there even when we have 
better pet imaging and better ways to to um, visualize, there will still be a subset of patients that have a rising PSA despite a castrate level of testosterone. And so those M0 unique patients are candidates for treatment. There are three, three randomized clinical trials demonstrating significant improvement in both metastasis-free and overall survival with the introduction of this agent in that subset of patients who had a doubling time that was more rapid. So wanna put that caveat. Certainly long doubling times, those less than a year could be safely observed um, and may not necessarily opt for this treatment. Um, the three studies, Spartan introduced the use of apalutamide in this space, Prosper with enzalutamide, and the Aramis trial with darolutamide. Um, so I think next generation PET scans will come into play and there will be sort of a Will Rogers effect where, you know, we now have a fancy scanner and it's going to, um, it'll ensure that an M0 is truly an M0. So that will improve the overall outcome simply by better categorizing them. And then even the newly diagnosed metastatic CRPCs are going to be in an earlier stage of that. So they're going to do better too. So that'll impact on outcomes for the therapeutics that we introduce. But it doesn't necessarily mean that they won't benefit even if they have oligo or early metastatic visualization on their pet in this setting. So we're going to have to do some additional studies. We're going to have to layer some additional therapeutics in there because we're not curing the cancer, but we're certainly improving both the quality of life and the, and the length of their life with the addition of these agents. Really impactful studies that were done uh, with regard to this. So, well, thank you for uh, uh, joining us this afternoon. And I'd like to thank our audience uh, for their attention as well. Uh, for more information uh, on uh, this podcast and other podcasts, uh, please visit auanet.org backslash university. I'm David Gerard, and thanks for your attention. Thank you.